favorite subject in school growing up was always English or reading or language arts or whatever title the school decided to give to that subject each year. I've always loved reading and words and spelling, and I still do, which means that currently I play Wordle, which also means that I've played probably every word game that is in existence. But if you know of some that I haven't played or you have a good one that you just love, I am always on the market for a new spelling or word game. So send them my way. But I think the reason I like that subject more than the others is because that was the subject that I was always the best at. It's the only subject I ever took honors classes in. It's the only subject I got the best grades in. And it's the subject that led to me getting multiple times the honor of competing in the school-wide spelling bee. Now, most schools these days break up elementary school and junior high, but not mine. The elementary school that I went to was kindergarten through eighth grade, which means that kids in that ridiculously large range of grades all were on the same campus. It also means that some kids had to go to that same campus for nine years straight, which is just wild for me to think about. But to determine who would get to compete in the school-wide spelling bee, all classes from grade four through grade eight would, would hold their own uh, spelling bees within their classroom. So during the allotted English subject period, we would have a competition, a spelling bee, in our class to figure out the top two who would go then go on to compete in the school-wide spelling bee. Maybe my most proud accomplishment in elementary school from all of elementary school years was the year that I made it all the way to the big stage of Cheyenne Elementary School's library to compete in the spelling bee for my fourth grade year. I won my class spelling bee easily, at no point breaking a sweat or even coming close to, to seeing a word that gave me any kind of mental stress whatsoever. And then that hot streak continued into the big show, word after word, correctly being spelled by me with the utmost precision. That day, the excitement in the air was palpable. The crowd in that tiny little library was electric. And I watched as one by one, my peers made the most simple of spelling mistakes, obviously the pressure getting to them. And at last, only three of us remained, myself and two eighth graders. Now, because this contest had begun with so many contestants and we were now in the home stretch, they decided to call for a little break to reshuffle and to close up the gaps between myself and these other two finalists. And it was at this point that the magnitude of the situation that I was in really began to dawn on me. I finally noticed that I was the youngest contestant remaining. All eyes were on me. I could feel the crowd silently pulling for me, the allure of a Cinderella story too much to resist. I mean, who wouldn't want to see this lowly fourth grader outspell these older and more experienced eighth graders? The glory and the honor of being a fourth grade spelling bee champion was so close I could taste it. My name would be enshrined in the halls of Cheyenne Elementary forever as the youngest spelling bee champ in the school's history. I have no idea if that would have been true or not, but I could, I could see it happening. I could see the local paper writing about my path to victory, listing out every word that I spelt correctly on my way to the top prize. I would become a Peoria, Arizona legend forever. But alas, that little break caused me to have a shift in focus. No longer was I focused on the words, no longer was I focused on the art 
of spelling. Now, instead, I was focused on how close I was to glory, on how much younger I was than those tall kids. I was focused on how intimidating the moment was. I was focused on how everyone was looking at me. And so finally, my turn came. My word was read out loud to me. And in the heat of the moment, I didn't hesitate. I did what I was there to do. I spelled. My word was popper. I spelt it out, P-O-P-P-R. And it was a correct spelling of the incorrect word. Because it turns out the word that I had been assigned was popper, P-A-U-P-E-R. I was eliminated and I was devastated. In all my subsequent spelling bee appearances, I never again broke the top 10. Now, what was the point of that highly dramatized, yet 100% true story? The point is that focus is important. Maybe you've been in a similar situation where you're in just an absolute groove at work or at school or in a co competition much like I was, but then something happened. Something broke your concentration, something shifted your focus, and in that moment, it caused things to go wrong. I think of the time in the Gospels when Peter was walking on the water towards Jesus. Everything was going great, but the sound of the waves and the wind around him overwhelmed his senses, and it tells us that he took his eyes off of Jesus, and that's when he began to sink. He took his eyes off of what he was supposed to be focusing on, and things began to change. I took my eyes off of what I was supposed to be focusing on, and things began to change. Focus is important. But the opposite side of the coin is true as well. We've all been there where we're struggling through the day, we're, we're not really that focused on whatever we're supposed to be accomplishing, but then we're able to take a little break, take a little step away, catch our breath for a moment, and come back to that moment ready. Maybe for us, it's, it's when your Apple Watch dings and it tells you to stand up, to take a breath, and so you do that, and you're better prepared for the moment that you're in. Maybe you're with your kids and they're getting on your last nerves. You're frustrated. You're about to scream. You're about to just absolutely lose it on them. And you step back. You get back to be able to look at the big picture. Have a moment just real quick to yourself. And you're able to come back with more patience ready to face the rest of the day with them. Maybe it's at work and it's been one of those days, you know, that caught you're stuck in traffic. Everything's been going wrong and work is no different, but you're able to take a quick minute, go for a little walk around the building, take a little walk outside, and you're able to come back to what the day has for you, more focused and more patient. See, focus is important. Focus has the potential to change outcomes. It could be something as small as just a quick little break that changes our next few hours, or it could be something as consequential as a massive revelation that finally dawns on us and changes the trajectory of our life. Last week, we started this series, Summer Playlist, looking at the prayers that Paul regularly opens his letters to various churches with. And what we said last week and what we're going to continue to say throughout this series is that maybe the same things that Paul prayed for are the very things that God wants for you today. That maybe what Paul prayed for those churches then is the same thing that God hopes for our church now. And so today, I want to look together at the opening of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And so if you have your Bible with you, if you have your phone close to you, open up your Bible app, we're gonna begin at the very beginning 
of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to read the first nine verses of that chapter together. And it says this, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Before we get into the heart of what Paul is saying here and what it could mean for us, there are a few general observations that I wanna make about what Paul and the church in Corinth that I think will help us going forward. First, as Pastor Chris pointed out last week, Paul loves to start all his letters pretty much the same way. Just like the timing of a good summer hit is predictable, once you see Paul's pattern to start his letters, it's impossible to unsee. So here is Paul's formula. First, he gives thanks to God always for the recipients for certain reasons, which he then lists out. But because his, his formula is predictable, it gives us important insight when we notice the differences between each letter. See, in some letters, you can see how excited Paul is about what's going on in their community and all that they are doing for the kingdom. And yet in other letters, you can see that Paul has to be kind of creative in what he thanks God for them, what he's praying for them about, because there isn't much to praise. And then in the rest of the letter, he'll be addressing everything that's going wrong and challenging the church to be better. Which leads us to our second observation. The church in Corinth belonged in that second category. See, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to address a number of problems. The basic layout of the letter is in the first six chapters, Paul writes to address some fights and disagreements that the Corinthians were getting into. And then from chapter seven through the end, Paul gets into kind of a Q&A section where he addresses specific questions that the Corinthians had asked. And so here is a brief list of some of the Corinthian shenanigans that Paul was writing to deal with. There was deep division and cliques forming within the community. A number of the people were rejecting Paul's authority as an apostle. There was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. A couple members of the community were suing each other. A common Corinthian practice at that time of having sex with temple prostitutes at the local temple of Aphrodite was actually being practiced by some within the, the church community. Some in the church were forbidding others to get married. Some were worshiping idols. The poor were being exploited by the wealthy in the church. Some were pre-gaming communion and showing up drunk to what was called the common meal. And many were abusing spiritual gifts. Given all of that, given everything, all of these problems that Paul will go on to address in the rest of the letter, it really is amazing that Paul is able to find anything at all to thank God for about them. 
And the third observation is that in this passage, specifically verses 4 through 9, we find one of Paul's main bits, what is considered a true Paul trademark, the run-on sentence. We don't really notice it because Greek and English are very different languages, but over the course of what's about six sentences, depending on your translation in English, and within those sentences, Paul covering probably four to five different ideas, in the language that Paul originally wrote in, Paul is actually just writing one mega sentence. Why this is important for us to know is that despite jamming a lot of different ideas into one big run-on sentence, Paul is actually just saying one main thing. The driving force of Paul's convoluted sentence are the three words, I thank God. Everything else flows out of and expands upon the idea that God alone is the source. Theologian and scholar Gordon Fee, in his excellent work on this epistle, says this, Paul redirects their focus from themselves to God, who by calling them is responsible for their very existence as a community of faith. God is the one who formed this community. God is the one who called them. God is the one who has gifted them, and God is the one who will see them through to the end. Despite how wrong things may have gone, despite the mistakes the Corinthians are making, God is their source, and as such, is the only one who truly deserves their focus. And so that's what Paul aims to do with his opening prayer, to invite the Corinthians and us to shift our focus from ourselves to God. Which brings us at last into the meat of our content for today. If you're a note taker or at least just a person who likes to know where we're headed, here it is. Paul invites us to shift our focus from the faults of others to the faithfulness of God, from the gift to the giver, and from our failures to the fellowship we have with Jesus. Let's get into it. As I listed out in detail a bit ago, the Corinthians were messed up. They weren't perfect by any means, and the problems that they were allowing or causing were keeping them from experiencing in full what God had envisioned for their community. And yet Paul calls them God's church in Corinth. He calls them God's own holy people. And he genuinely thanks God for them. The question then is how can both of those things be true? How can Paul spend the bulk of this letter calling out this community for all the horrible things they were doing and yet also start that same letter by calling them God's holy people? How can he be so disappointed in their behavior and attitudes and yet still always thank God for them? Again, Gordon Fee has the answer for us. He says, to delight in God for his working in the lives of others, even in the lives of those with whom one feels compelled to disagree, is sure evidence of one's own awareness of being the recipient of God's mercies. See, Paul knew the depth of forgiveness that he had personally experienced. This is the guy who somewhere else in one of his other letters wrote that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Paul had experienced the mercy of God, so he was able to delight that God was at work even in a community as imperfect as the one in Corinth. Paul was able to do this because he had shifted his focus from the faults of others to the faithfulness of God. The Corinthians absolutely needed Paul's correction. They needed to change their behavior. They needed to be reminded. Uh, they needed to begin to do 
things differently. But above all of that, they needed to be reminded that God is faithful. They needed to be reminded that no matter how much they had gotten wrong, they already belonged to the only one who could make it right. Paul himself chose to focus on the faithfulness of God over the faults of the Corinthians, and in so doing, to help them to learn how to do the same. Paul began this letter by thanking God for the Corinthians generally, but then he goes on to move into the specific. What specifically was there to be thankful for among this community? Paul thanks God for graciously giving gifts to the Corinthians. And then he gets even more specific and singles out two gifts in particular that were presumably more evident in them than others. Paul thanked God that he had given them their eloquent words and their knowledge. See, the Corinthians were educated. They could speak well. They were filled with knowledge, and it seemed like they were proud of that. They had done well in the spelling bee and were telling stories about it 12 years later. The problem, though, wasn't that the Corinthians had these gifts. Their eloquent words and knowledge weren't the source of what was wrong. In fact, Paul calls these things good gifts that were given to them by God himself. The problem wasn't in the gifts. The problem was in the Corinthians' attitudes towards the gifts. They were proud of those gifts. They cared more about those gifts than the giver, and Paul was inviting them to flip that order around, to shift their focus from the gifts themselves to the giver. Paul was reminding them that every good thing, everything they had accomplished, all the praiseworthy things going on in their community were ultimately from God. Paul even took it a step further and pointed out that them having received gifts from God in the first place was a sign that the, the message that Paul had shared with them was true. See, Paul had shared the good news of Jesus with them. They had believed that good news and began living it out in their community, and God had given them gifts, which then confirmed the message that Paul had shared. It was a beautiful cycle that the Corinthians had simply begun to overemphasize one step up. And so Paul invites them to redirect and refocus on the giver rather than on the gifts themselves. And so the last shift that we see Paul encouraging the Corinthians to make in this passage is from personal failure to partnership with Jesus. Once again, in case you forgot, the Corinthians had problems. The fact that we're even reading this letter thousands of years later is evidence of that. The Corinthians were getting things wrong at nearly every turn, and Paul wrote this letter to address and correct those mistakes. And yet, despite those failures, they were invited by God to partner with Jesus. God was present and active among them for the whole process. Let's look at how Paul writes out that process throughout this, this, this passage. He says that they were called by God they were made holy through Jesus, and now they are invited into partnership with the Son. One last time, your friend and mine, Gordon Fee, summarizes this process really well when he says, the calling to Christ is a calling to be in fellowship with Christ through the Spirit. The Corinthians' failures absolutely were a problem. Their failures had to be addressed, and that's what the rest of 1 Corinthians goes on to do. But what this opening prayer shows us is that their failures weren't enough to stop the move of the Spirit among them. Their, their failures weren't enough to cancel out their invitation to partner with Jesus. And so as we close, I want us to explore what all this means for us today. 
I don't want to hurt your feelings, but Paul did not have you specifically 2,000 years ago in mind when he wrote this letter. He was thinking about the Corinthians who were living around 50 AD, and he was thinking about their needs and their problems. But the Holy Spirit who is at work through Paul during this writing did have your needs and your problems in mind. And so how do we take what Paul wrote for them then and put it into practice for us now? I have a few suggestions to help us make each shift that we've seen Paul encourage in this passage. First, to shift our focus from the faults of others to the faithfulness of God, we need to practice gratitude. In talking about a few of these ideas with my wife, who also happens to be a therapist, she informed me that there are real physical benefits to practicing gratitude. And I didn't really believe her, so I did a little research of my own. And having done that, I can confirm she's right. Studies have shown that gratitude can lead to better sleep, reduce symptoms of physical pain, lower levels of inflammation, lower blood pressure, and ultimately a longer life. Now this shift is one that I've had to make personally in my life over and over because focusing on the faults of others is so easy and comes all too naturally to me. And so to combat that, an incredibly practical step that I've begun to incorporate into my routine, into my life, is a gratitude journal. Now, a gratitude journal is exactly what it sounds like. It's a journal or a collection of papers loosely put together, if that's more your style, where you write out the things that you're thankful for. Now, if you feel like that might be a practice that Jesus is inviting you to step into, I want to give a few uh, tips to make this practical step even more practical. And the first is to be honest. You could just write, I'm thankful for my family and, and call it good. But if the goal is to shift our focus away from the faults of others, that's not going to be the most useful way to go about this. So think of a relationship or a situation in your life that causes you stress. It could be your condescending boss, the unrealistic demands and expectations put on you at your job. It could be your marriage or a relationship with your kid or a friend or anyone in your life. Think about what it is about that relationship or situation that stresses you out, but then think about what you're grateful for about it. God, thank you that I'm employed even if I feel overwhelmed. Thank you for the opportunity I have to raise the kids you've given me, even though they're so gifted in the art of pressing every single one of my buttons. Thank you that my spouse is always there. The truth is that God can handle your honesty and being grateful for the good in your reality is much healthier than missing out on whatever good there is by being hyper-focused on the bad. Secondly, be specific. Again, you could just write, thank you for my spouse. Well, what about them are you grateful for? You could just write, thank you for my job. Well, what about your job is good? What things are good in the job that you have? See, the more specific you are, the more successful the shift in your focus will be. Lastly, be creative. Sometimes there isn't much to be thankful for in a difficult relationship or, or a hard situation, but gratitude is still helpful. Remember, Paul found something even to be thankful for in the Corinthians, even though he knew all the ways that they had fallen short. So be observant in your relationships and in your circumstances. Be creative in the things that you find in them that you can be 
grateful for. See, having done this practice for a while in my own life, the main thing that I have learned is that it's hard to continue to focus on the faults of others if you're instead focused on how grateful you are for all the evidence of God's faithfulness in your life. It's hard to stay mad at someone if you're too busy being grateful for them. Second, to shift our focus from the gifts to the giver, we need the practice of worship. Worship, by its very nature, takes our eyes off of ourselves and places our eyes directly on God. Now, most of us hear the word worship and we think of, wor- of music. And while music is certainly part of worship, it's not the whole story. Richard Foster defines worship as our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. See, worship is ultimately just a response. It's a mindset that we live every moment of our life from. So how do we enter into a more worshipful lifestyle? First, don't neglect the worship service itself. You're tuned in right now, you're watching this right now, so you have this part down. But a big reason why we gather together each week, why we preach, why we sing, why we do what we do is to refocus our hearts and our minds on the giver. It's to shift our focus from ourselves to our Savior. And so the weekly gathering with other followers of Jesus is an an essential part of a life of worship. Second, use music as the tool that it is. Music isn't worship, but it has a unique ability to lead us to worship. And so I challenge you this week to live a more worshipful life. Uh, Find a block of time in your weekly routine, whether that be 30 minutes or an hour, however much time you can carve out. Get alone, get some headphones, or at least get into a room with, with minimal distractions and listen to a good worship album or a good worship playlist and really let the words of the song Refocus your mind on the person of Jesus. Third, if music or at least modern worship music isn't really your thing, maybe try a different approach. See, I believe God chooses to show us something of himself through nature. And maybe it's just because I've spent more than 20 of the 30 years that I've been alive living in a desert, but we here in Las Cruces are surrounded by natural beauty. You could take a drive up to the mountains and decide to meet God there. You could go for a walk around your neighborhood this time of year, maybe do it as early as you can handle waking up to avoid the heat. But while you're on that walk, focus on everything around you that isn't made by people. Hear the birds, feel the wind, observe all the different plants. See, nature is a good gift given to you by a good creator. And that can be a great foundation for a life of worship to flow out of. May we all, in whatever way our uniquely designed personality finds most fitting, respond to the Father's heart of love by living in worship. And lastly, to shift our focus from our failures to the fellowship we have with Jesus, we need to practice participation. The last few words of this passage that we've been looking at truly take my breath away. The idea that the creator of the universe, the author of each and every one of our stories, not only loves us, but invites us into partnership with him, where we get to work with him to accomplish here on earth what he wants to be accomplished, regardless of how long our list of failures is, that honestly sounds like the greatest news there is. 
but something that big, something that cosmic in scope. That, that sounds great, but how do we get started in something like that? What does it look like for us to do that? And I think it looks like what Henry Blackaby wrote. It looks like he said, watch to see where God is working and join him in his work. And so look around in your life. Where is God at work in your life? The answer to that question is everywhere. But today, let's just look at three areas where God is at work in each of our life. First, God is always at work in your area of influence. And what I mean by area of influence is where you spend the bulk of your productive hours each day. For some of you, that's school. From first period until the final bell, you have numerous opportunities to participate in what God is doing on your campus. For others, it's your job or career. God is at work there through how you respond to criticism from your boss, how you're able to support and be there for your coworkers when they go through hard things, how you deal with adversity and uh, disappointment, and all the other ways that you are able to practice the way of Jesus within your workplace. For those of you who are like me, your area of influence is within your home every day, raising and discipling tiny humans who seem to not even be paying attention to you when you talk, which leads into another area. God is also at work in your family. What does it look like to join God in the work that he's doing in your family? It looks like living as the unique person that God created you to be, and then also loving each member of the family that you're in for the unique person that God created them to be. It looks like creating and contributing to a culture of honor and respect and forgiveness in the way that each member interacts with one another. It looks like loving your spouse like Christ loves the church. It looks like mutually submitting to one another within your marriage, honoring and respecting each other and looking for ways to outdo one another in showing honor. It looks like respecting your parents and honoring the decisions that they make, even when it's hard, even when you really, really don't want to, and even when they make mistakes. The last place that all of us can be on the lookout for the work of God in our lives is in the ordinary, everyday opportunities that we all have. See, the most radical thing that followers of Jesus have been called to do is to live our ordinary lives in partnership with Jesus, to find ways that we can help make God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, whether we are at work or at school or at a softball game or stuck in traffic or posting on Facebook or at the gas station or any of the million seemingly random and mundane moments that we find ourselves in every single day. God is at work in all of it, and we have the profound privilege of participating with him. Let's take advantage of it. And so my question for you as we close is where does this hit for you today? Do you need to shift your focus from the faults of others to the faithfulness of God? Maybe you've become way too focused on the gifts to the point where you're not focused on the giver. Or maybe you've been so focused for so long on your personal failures that you need to be refocused on the fellowship available to you with Jesus. Maybe one of the suggestions that I've made really resonated with you and you feel like that, that you need to step 
into one of those. That's great. Lean into that this week. Find some time to make it happen. Put it into practice this week and see what God will accomplish through it. Or maybe for you, some of those suggestions, you're already doing it, or it doesn't sound like something that would help you all that much and it's not for you. That's fine too. But the call for you then would be to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what your next steps should be. Regardless of where this lands for you today, let's pray and ask God to shift our focus in whatever way he sees fit. God, thank you for this incredible letter to the church in Corinth that Paul wrote. Though they were flawed, though they went through a lot of things, though they were getting things wrong, you still cared about that church enough to inspire Paul to write a letter to, to challenge them to be better. And I pray that that would be true for each and every one of us today. Despite what we have going on in our life, despite the difficult situations we may be facing, despite the ways that we may be getting things wrong, even right now, you invite us into participation with you. And I pray that that invitation will lead us to worship you deeper. And I pray that that realization will lead us into deeper gratitude for who you are and the relationship that we are able to have with you. So whatever shift of focus we need to make, I pray that you would reveal that to each and every person listening right now. I pray that you would show us the steps that we need to take. I pray that you would show us the practical things that we can do to get to the place that you are calling us to be. We thank you for who we are, who you are and all that you have accomplished in our community, in our lives personally, and in our families. And I pray that you would help us take that step of, of making your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And in your name we pray. Amen.